0: You are listening to Cathonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Cathonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin MacLeod. Hello, and welcome to Cathonia. My name is Breach Burke. I'm your host for this podcast. Um, this week, what we are going to talk about is, this is part two of a... Uh, I guess you could call it a, a mini-series, on the goddess Hecate, who is the uh, queen of queen of witches, queen of the underworld. She's associated with crossroads, uh, magic, witchcraft, ghosts. And uh, as I mentioned in the last podcast, she's probably one of the most, I guess you could call her one of the most liminal deities. Um, I just will mention quickly that after we are done talking about Hecate, next month we're going to take a turn and um, look at some... Uh, some uh, deities and folklore figures (coughs) pardon me from outside of the uh greek greek and roman realm which is mainly where i've been working right now um in the near east uh mainly because yeah i've been trying to kind of keep things geographically you know trying to keep things geographically themed or together but since october is a extremely liminal month um associated with um halloween with the uh thinning of the veil between the worlds I thought it might be appropriate to cover two other topics and two topics in particular that we're going to cover next month are Baba Yaga the witch from Slavic folklore and also uh, the Morrigan uh, the Irish uh, goddess of war who's also associated with um, the gates of the underworld and um, with other um, she has other liminal associations as well Um, So that's just a little prelude that I wanted to throw in there. I didn't want to forget by the end of the episode, because usually I get so into what I'm talking about, and then at the end I go, oh, darn, I really wanted to mention that. So um, anyway, so moving back to Hecate. Um, I mentioned in the last episode the possibility of six Hecates, okay? Um, And I'll just kind of repeat what I have in my notes about that. One is the sort of Anatolian goddess associated with, uh, Lagina and the temples there, uh, in Karina, which was, um, you know, now, now it's in modern Turkey, uh, but was Asia Minor, the Anatolian, uh, area of that time. And again, there may be, there's, there's overlap between all of these Hecates. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, she's been a goddess of childbirth, who's also associated with, um, Apollo, Helios, Helios, the sun god. Both of them have, have had attributes as sun gods, and of course the goddess Artemis, um, There's the Hecate of the Hesiod and the Homeric hymns, okay? So she is the one who um, is considered a Hesiod, talks about in very glowing terms, as, you know, being highly respected by Zeus and having her share of the earth, sky, and sea. Okay. Um, This is a figure that is, you know, and and it it surprises a lot of scholars because the later uh, versions of Hecate are not quite so, um, uh, they don't seem quite so beneficent, let's put it that way. Um, and we talked about those in the last episode, so that's just sort of a brief recap. Um, if you want to go back over that territory, um, go back to the previous podcast, uh, and have a listen. Um, so this particular episode, I want to talk about the other sort of three aspects of Hecate. Um, one is her as a sort of what we, I would call a middle platonic, um, and neoplatonic savior figure, Hecate Soteria, um, which is also part of her Anatolian aspect, by the way, but, um... You know, but but it's specifically it's it's actually quite a critical um, shift, I guess you could say, in the way of thinking about Hecate, uh, and also the way that we think about uh, life after death. I mean, she she's actually an extremely pivotal figure, um, you know, in in how we our change in thinking about the underworld and what it is um from the sort of you know general well you're dead and you all go to the same place to this sort of more ethically oriented um idea that one could be saved from death through certain behaviors or certain practices and so forth um which later came to sort of more modern ideas about salvation in western religion okay um so that's that's a very important concept that i'm probably going to spend most of my time on that um but there is this idea of her queen of witches and ghosts and at the crossroads. And, of course, the connected that is the triple Hecate or the, or the goddess Truia uh, or Diana Truia. Um, again, Diana and Artemis are similar um, ones. Artemis is the Greek version. Diana is, tends to be the Romanized Artemis, um, whatever other attributes she may have. And uh, Truia, in this case, was, was associated with both Hecate and Artemis. Uh, and I'm sorry, Hecate and Diana. And uh, has to do again with that triple crossroads aspect. So I'm gonna talk about all of these things. This is sort of my next um, next thing. So again, I have I have some notes here and I've tried to try to keep it succinct. So last time we ran to like to an hour and I'd like to make it a little shorter this time. But uh, some important stuff to go over here with regard to Hecate. Okay. So um, if we kind of look at the, the, I'm going to say, like the late classical Hellenistic period of Greece, um, we're talking 5th century, 4th century BCE, and onward, 3rd century, uh, the time of um, Alexander the Great is the later part in the Macedonian Empire, okay? Um, you see a, a prominence of Greek philosophy at this time. And as I mentioned in my new book, Death and the Maiden, I have a whole chapter on Pythagoras, Zoroaster. And Zoroastrianism and uh, and Orphism, uh, and how these end up these the influences of these and and to be and just to be sort of cautious about that. There's a lot that's still uncertain about you know how these religions were practiced or what was believed, particularly Zoroastrianism. Okay, there's there's a lot we don't know about that, and certainly the way the Greeks practiced Zoroastrianism is probably not the way um probably not the way Persian Zoroastrians practiced, or maybe it was. Um, we don't, we're not, we don't entirely know. But um, we, but when it comes to, um, so, so from this period of time, we, we're starting to have a different way of thinking about religion. Okay. Um, now, Hecate appears as a triple goddess after, um, now this is, some, I, I have a number of sources I've pulled from here. Of course, I've pulled from Sarah Isles Johnston, but not Restless Dead this time. She has a work called Hecate Soteria. Um, which was part of uh, the American Classical Studies. I don't know if that was a journal or series, but volume 21. I'm just looking at the book right now. Um, The subtitle is A Study of Hecate's Roles in Chaldean Oracles and Related Literature. That's what I'm going to get to in a moment. Um, Wikipedia actually has a very good article on Hecate, too, because it it pulls from a lot of the primary source material from um, Pausanias uh, in particular and Pliny and some of the um, writers that we associate with the Middle Platonic and Neoplatonic sort of periods. Okay, which are, um, which are getting more towards the the early Christian era as well. Okay, um, so okay, what's mentioned? I think it's in the Wikipedia article that as a triple goddess, um, she was shown in that form after the fifth century, fifth uh, century BCE. Okay, sculptor uh, Alcheminus portrayed her in this way, similar to the Roman goddess Trivia of the Three Roads. Okay, with the three heads, um. And of course, that again, as I mentioned, that connects her to her liminal function. She's, you know, she was associated previously with doorways, with protection, with keeping things out. And so, where three roads meet, you know, you're kind of in a place that's neither, you know, in a way, it's sort of like the two faced Janus statue. It's kind of both backwards and forwards, and perhaps neither here nor there. Um, it's in a place of uncertainty. You know, which which road does one take? And uh, I think that Hecate. Um, I'm just going to put my uh, my microphone in different places here, and I want to make sure I'm close enough to it. Um, it's it's this is sort of her, you know, th- this is sort of one of her main connections, as we will see, which connects into her, um, you know, t- it connects to her association certainly with rites of passages, with both birth and death. Okay, um, and they note that um, she's identified with Enodia, the go- a goddess in Thessaly. Um, who uh whose name uh who is associated with childbirth and other things but whose name actually means uh in the road okay so that might that you know that you you can see the connection there in terms of of the crossroads um and it's pointed out that at least since the third century BCE okay um that we see a Chthonic association with Hecate, okay, with her having to do with witchcraft and Chthonic rituals. And specifically what's cited here is the Argonautica, the version that was written in the 3rd century um, BCE. Um, And of course, the Argonautica is very likely an older epic. Uh, Herodotus makes reference to it um, as something much older uh, in his histories. But certainly the versions that come down to us are from the 3rd century BCE and later. So they're very late uh, writings, uh, you know, relatively speaking. And in the Argonautica, uh, Medea, the witch who is a, uh, who, uh, she's really the daughter of uh, the king um, of Colchis, uh, Aetes, um, who falls in love with Jason and ends up murdering her brother and doing, you know, all kinds of things. Medea will be the subject of a podcast at some point. But uh, she is a priestess of Hecate. She is the niece of the goddess Circe, the one who helps Odysseus um, in the famous scene in the Odyssey known as the Nicaea, when she uh, tells him how to uh, perform the necromantic rituals to bring Tiresias, um, you know, to come and, you know, you know, drink from the pool of sacrificial blood that's poured into a pit and to tell him, you know, what he needs to do to get home. Now, Medea, what you know, what Jason needs to do to appease Hecate, is she instructs him to um, offer the sacrifice, um, both you know, slitting the throat of a of a ewe, a baby lamb, and then burning it, and then uh, in a pit. Now, mind you, now is um, now when you um, sacrifice things on an altar and and burn the offerings to go towards the sky. Those are then de- that tends to be the sacrifice mode for celestial deities, deities associated with the sky and with light. Those that are associated with the Chthonic realm under the earth, uh, generally you dig a pit and you make the sacrifice and drain the blood down into the pit. Okay, and uh, so she tells him to do that and to offer a libation of honey and then to retreat from the spot without looking back. Now this is actually again very characteristic of Chthonic rituals in general. I mean whether you're you know whether it's Hecate or whether it's some other kind of um, certain earth powers or elemental spirits you make your offering and then you walk away you don't you don't look back okay um, they also mentioned that in the later writings of Hermaeus Trismegistus um, which is a very sort of you know were writings attributed to that figure which is sort of a very you know sort of a legendary or 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 um basic early historical um esoteric text okay magical text that's based on a lot of egyptian ideas you know what its actual source is it's hard to say because it does mention the god uh, thoth and um connects him with uh this uh hermaeus trismegistus figure hecate is actually portrayed um, in these writings as a figure with three heads one of a dog one of a serpent and one of a horse and interestingly, all of these figures are definitely cathonic in nature. Because if you remember, particularly with the horse, when we talked about in the Nightmare episode, horses are associated with Poseidon, uh, and Poseidon is the is the earth shaker and the god uh, under the sea. And of course, the area under the sea also has sort of a Chthonic. It's, it's, it's a connection between the cathonic and the upper world. So all of these are, uh, and dogs, of course, we talked about with Hecate and serpents, Um, are very, very clearly uh, associated with, um, you know, earth um, regeneration and life on earth, okay. Um, And they said that sometimes she also is shown with the head of a cow or a boar. Now, her festival in Athens was the uh, dipnon, which refers to the evening meal, okay. And we talk about Hecate's suppers. I mentioned that, I think, in the last podcast, and it takes place at the new moon, um, namely to placate the restless dead. And again, these meals are left at a crossroads. Um, it's worth noting that Rome had very kind of similar rituals regarding the dead and the restless dead. Um, the Lemuria in particular was a festival that was held in May. And Ovid, I think, talks about some of these rites, um, as well as some of the other, um, you know, there's other fragments from other writers. But uh, but these the, the Lemuria festival, um, again, was meant to one one performed certain spells or certain actions or did certain things to, um, keep the, you know, to appease ancestors and also to keep the restless dead, um, or that dead that might be angry or have unfinished business sort of away from their house. Okay. So, um, so Hecate, uh, in Athens was definitely associated with this. And this is at the time of the new moon, which might actually have to do with Hecate's association with the dark of the moon. Because of course, the darkest the darkest point of the moon is just before uh, the light. There, there's actually another festival that takes place the next day when one sees the first sliver of light of the new moon. Um, I want to say that it's called Nemona, but I can't. Uh, I don't have the um, exact term in front of me at the moment. But I think that's what that's what it's called. And then after that, it's followed by a festival called the Agathos Demon, which actually means good spirit or good. Um, Good guide. So um, it's so yeah, so so it's associated with that uh, the waxing moon with the the increase of the moon, uh, which is which is traditionally. I mean, if you practice magic, that's the time at which to start new ventures. Um, and, and to, to get rid of the old and to have new beginnings, you know, it's, it's the death to rebirth kind of a thing of the moon and the full moon, of course, being the full point at which one, um, is the culmination of what one is working on. And the waning moon is for, um, what you want to get rid of. And traditionally for people who, um, practice such things, you know, for a time of cursing and, um, banishing and doing those kinds of, kinds of works. Um, which again, you know, Hecate is kind of right on the line of that. Um, now what I found interested is Pausanias, um, who's one of the early writers, I want to say he, you know, his writings come from roughly the second century. Um, he, you know, he's kind of one of the, who, one of these writers, again, like Herodotus that has sort of historical anecdotes that we're not really sure how accurate they are. But he connects, um, the temple of Hecate, at Aegina, which I think I had mentioned also in the last, um, episode. Um, that it was founded by Orpheus the Thracian, And that's important to me because Orphism is sort of, you know, just like we talked about Zoroastrianism and Pythagoreanism, Orphism is kind of a movement that comes out of that. Um, And again, it's kind of been described, it's a term kind of like New Age movement where it describes a variety of different beliefs which may or may not be related to each other and probably also have different forms. Okay, But what we think of as Orphism also comes out of this sort of um, you know, late classical Hellenistic period. And, um, and Orphism significantly is the first place where we start to see this idea of salvation, something like salvation after death. Uh, interestingly, it's either connected with the goddess Demeter and her, her journey with the to go- you know, find the goddess Persephone and, and bring her back to the upper world, which again is a death and rebirth image right there. Um, and also the, the rites of the god Dionysus, the um, that sort of immediate possession um, of the god and the ecstasy of, of of the Dionysian ritual, which liberates ones from social convention. Okay, um, so very interesting. These these are kind of the first places where we talk about one who being saved or liberated. Okay, and in this way, um, there you kind of see that there's sort of a, a connection between um, Hecate. Uh, you know, there, there's this, um, it, there, it, to me, that's, a, that's, that's another kind of clue to a savior connection uh, for Hecate. Um, so having said that, I would like to get into that particular aspect, which is known as um, Hecate Soteria, um, which is the word, Soteria being the word for uh, salvation, the saving Hecate. And um, again, I'm going to turn to Sarah Isles Johnston here in this, uh, this work. Um, Let me just give my my full sources here. Um, It is, uh, let me find it. Yeah, Sarah Isles Johnston, uh, published by the American Philological Association in 1990. Um, And it's, uh, I'm just looking to see if there's a publisher listed. It just indicates it's part of the American Classical Studies series, probably from the American Philological Society. Uh, scholars Press, Atlanta, Georgia. They're listed as the publisher of this. okay. So that's the that's the version that I'm looking at and using if you wish to try to acquire this work uh, either from your library or to purchase it. I think I purchased my copy on Amazon. Um, it's an interesting work if you are interested in hecate in um, the scholars you know, this this sort of transition. And there's um, Hecate soteria and there's Hecate Medici, okay? interesting that we are hosted on a podcast called Metapsychosis, but uh, Metasi here is used as kind of this, um, in in referring to Hecate as a kind of bridge figure, okay, and we're gonna gonna talk about that. Um, So I'm looking at Sarah Isles Johnston, page 49, uh, where she's talking about the Chaldean oracles. Now, the Chaldean oracles are a um, group of writings uh, dated from roughly the 6th century BCE to the 3rd century. Um, and, you know, B.C.E. again, that that sort of period. And they're attributed often to Zoroaster, okay? Um, But they really, what they contain is a lot of what is the basis of what we think of as Neoplatonism, okay? It's, it's um, these different sayings and things that talk about, um, not only about the nature of the universe and and so forth, but also about, you know, about the the divisions of the heavens and, and the underworld and about life and death, but also about what they, magic, which at this point takes the form of what they call theurgy. And theurgy has a little bit more to do with, um, it, there's, there's it, it's, it's basically another variety of, of, of magic that's different, say, for an example, um, might be different from herbalism and so forth. It's probably closer to what we tend to think of as traditional magic um, in terms of the grimoires, or at least the later grimoires, where you have, you know, you're creating sigils and, and using signs. And there's also a certain amount of sympathetic magic. Um, uh, she makes reference to a, a thing that looks like a toy called an ink's eye and... Um, let's see, I. I and I, I think it's I Y N X is how you spell it. It's very interesting. And, and the plural is um uh ingus. Uh if you want to talk about multiple and basically it's almost like a kind of a thing, um almost like a bull roarer. It's on a it's on a string and you, you swing it around and the noise that it makes is supposed to be um you know, have something to do with the sound. It's supposed to have to do with the um something in tune with the sort of harmony of the spheres you know which is a platonic concept the idea of the the music of the universe or of the soul and that this was supposed to put one in uh, attunement or alignment with that um in one's um theurgic um you know uh, endeavors we'll call them so um and again, you know, there's there there. This is where we sort of also try to start to get this this distinction between sort of high magic and low magic. You know, whether that accurate or not, probably not very accurate. But there's you know between the earthly magic and the celestial. You know the you know the ones that one they're supposed to be spiritually edifying or to lift you up, as opposed to the things that you know perhaps have to do with baser things. Um, you know, uh, and you know, and, and again, there, there's really not a, there's not a real distinction there people tend to practice magic for one of two reasons well they, they practice it because um either they're trying again trying to learn something about the secrets of the universe and maybe about themselves um or they're trying to you know achieve something in life and they're trying to direct the energy in their own way and people have different ways of doing that and there's you know sort of in its own um ethical system and morality surrounding that but that's the kind of the idea. So theurgy, theurgy, kind of falls into this, um, you know, learning the secrets of, of the universe and um, you know becoming more, more spiritual, um, escaping um, the, the the worst trappings of death and so forth. You know, um, the theurgist and the, you know becomes this is, this is like the new magician. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this in her book. So on page 49, I just want to give you a little introduction from her because it's better than I can say it. I think. She says, the Chaldean oracles were composed towards the end of the Middle Platonic period, at which time ideas about the cosmic soul and its functions were fairly well established. The time of their composition also was wondering which Hecate's role as a guide across liminal points was taking on a new philosophical and mystical significance. One way in this significance was expressed was shown in a section entitled The Mistress of the Moon. And She says the Chaldean system was the first to equate soul and Hecate, uh, and she's, she has another chapter, which she calls Hecate Metisai. Um, and she talks about why there. And we're going to go look at that chapter also. Um, so she says, first, she wants to examine in detail the cosmological roles bestowed on Hecate slash soul by the oracles. The cosmological roles filled by Hecate slash soul can be broken into three categories. First, the transmitter of the ideas and thereby the structure of the physical world. Two, the dividing bond between this intelligible and sensible world. And three, a source of individual souls and enlivener of the physical world and of man. She says it's artificial to separate these roles sharply, for they are really interrelated facets of a larger one that in the end can be defined only as that of a link between the sensible and intelligent realms between man and God. Okay, and this intermediary thing becomes uh, quite important at this point. Um, So let's see, I just want to... look at my, my notes here because I don't want to um I don't want to I don't want to get too bogged down in reading all of this but I do want to get to the important points. Um now if we talk about um, Hecate Medici, the reason that I consider this to be important is because again the idea of her as an intermediary um a couple of things happen. We've been talking about Hecate as a chthonic goddess, okay? And what this does is this this first of all it moves the entire what we think of as the chthonic realm into the sky um and as we'll see the earth becomes something that's not not quite of the same value you know it's the spiritual and the celestial that's valued not the chthonic the chthonic is something to be kept at bay to protect yourself from and um she uh so just to read from isles johnson again i'm on page 71 um if you happen to have this book um she says um a growing interest in mediating deities and principles in general was growing you know, growing at this time. As the gods increasingly were portrayed as transcendent, okay, now celestial, away from the earth, not, not imminent, not part, that's, that's the, there's deity as, as being present here in the world with us and being transcendent. We usually think of deity in the West as transcendent. When you read the, the Bible story of the Garden of Eden, for instance, Yahweh's transcendent. He, he, he transcends um, our world okay he's not not part of nature nature is something sort of corrupt and that is um and there's definitely a um we're starting to see where this this kind of foundation for this this way of thinking uh comes in um as god okay as the gods were increasingly portrayed as transcendent as detached from the world of men the need for intervening principles or entities increased now we may think of things as like for example angels or guardian angels okay Um, but this was now becoming a a concept it wasn't you know there was such an idea as the daemon okay sort of a a, an intermediary spirit but now this was becoming a much more um, widespread idea I guess and much more I don't know if I want to say mainstream but certainly the oracles make a lot of use of it eventually intermediary deities, deities I'm sorry, intermediary entities entered into almost all philosophical or mystical expressions of the relationship between divinity and humanity, as they did in the relationships between other opposing concepts or entities such as the divided and indivisible or time and eternity. Um, And she says, certainly the Chaldean oracles were the products of a system that utilized Platonic doctrines. Okay, and they mention Hecate because she is one of the deities that is mentioned in the Chaldean oracles. She also mentions the Chaldean Eros, who seems to have grown directly from the Eros of Diotima's uh, speech in the Symposium, okay, and the Chaldean demonic system, which will be discussed as she puts it in part two okay now she also talks about the variety of gnosticism i get a lot of questions uh, when i teach about gnosticism and what it is and again gnosticism is one of those terms that's used as an umbrella term to discuss a lot of different uh strands of christian early christian thought but she talks about a variety of gnosticism promoted by valentius okay the valentian gnosticism Um, included a deity called um oros or boundary um, when another Gnostic deity, Sophia, okay, who's sort of a common thread here, intruded disastrously upon the previous, uh, previously transcendent paternal abyss, okay, when she went to the um, the great, um, the sort of great fatherly um, abyss. Um, Oro saved the entire universe from chaotic destruction by his literal intervention. Okay, so when she upset the balance, Boundaries needed to be reestablished, okay? This is actually very consistent with all of mythological and religious thinking. We, mo- we move from chaos to order. And in order to have order, you have to have boundaries. And boundaries, what, what sets a boundary? How do you measure a boundary? Well, through a ruler, right? You, you measure it, okay? There's, there's a measured limit. Um, this is why the king, by the way, is also referred to as a ruler, the ruler who, um, who makes laws, okay? Um, there's this idea of setting a boundary, um, uh, <clears throat> Oros represented the separating or delineating side of the cosmic mediator. From what little can be deduced about him, the Christos, the did the Christ, of Valentinian Gnosticism probably was the transmissive principle to help souls ascend. Okay, that's sort of a digression, but, um, but you're kind of getting a sense of, of what this system um, entails. She then says, by the time of the oracles, philosophers had long felt compelled to retain some of traditional religion's validity by explaining religious truths, quote-unquote, in, in philosophical terms or allegory. Plutarch's treatment of Isis and Osiris is one example of this. Alternatively, philosophy and religion could be combined into more, more or less harmoniously into a single doctrine. It was during the late second and early third centuries, as well as anyone can judge, that the group of hymns collected under the term Orphic, were first composed. Probably the first thing that impresses the modern reader of these hymns is the vast number of deities and epithets that have been gathered together, but philosophical ideas, uh, which have identified variously as Stoic or Platonic, are also present in abundance. Okay, so this is where we're seeing philosophy introduced into religion. Um, Working from the assumption that religion constantly was challenged by Greek philosophy in ways such as those described above, he asks whether religion ever retaliated. His answer is yes. Initially, he notes and the retaliation arose in foreign religions. And talks about Philo, um, who is a sort of Hellenistic Jew um, from this from this period. He says, As Philo sees it, the Jews are superior to the Greeks, not so much with regard to the result of their pursuit of wisdom as with regard to the sources, human speculation with the Greeks, divine revelation with the Jews, adherents of Moses are the true philosophers. With philosophers acquired through philosophy, Jews acquired through their... Um, <clears throat> uh nuso kai um you know through their <clears throat> their knowledge and their ethics okay or through their so really it's it's sort of like this 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 thing between reason versus revelation as it were, okay so Philo's arguing against <clears throat> this sort of introduction of philosophy, and she says the tide began to turn true wisdom in quotes was asserted to come from, not from philosophy but from religion and um he says, okay, I'm just going to read this last little bit from this section. Philo and um, <clears throat> uh, Keremon flourished in the first century. Merlin argues, uh, scholar Merlin argues, that Greek religion itself caught up with the rebellious trend begun by foreign religions in the second century. Its primary weapon, he suggests, was the corpus of the Chaldean oracles. And this is a quote from um, Merlin. Um M-E-R-L-A-N, uh, in the second century A.D. The, in the Hellenistic, in the Hellenic world. A very strange work originated uh, pretending to be a collection of oracles, including, including particularly oracles by Apollo. What strangely philosophic questions it must have, have been in which the oracle was asked and what strangely philosophic answers they received. The god who gave them, obviously, was well acquainted with Platonic and Aristotelian concepts and had read his Timaeus, another Platonic work, very well, in all likelihood, um, also Plato's second and sixth letter. But it was particularly important, these philosophical doctrines are supposed to be found in oracles. They represent divine wisdom. The inference is obvious. Whatever is valuable in Greek philosophy can be found in documents of divine revelation. Obviously, religion is true philosophy. Okay? So now we're, we're getting, and we're also getting this sort of very rational and ethical ideas about religion and about the, the function of religion, which, as I've mentioned, is previously about appeasing forces. Now it's more about, um, you know, discovering these kinds of truths. Um, now, let's see. Um, now, w- how Hecate fits into this. Let me just... Um, I'm reading her section now on Theurgy in, in Chapter 6. Um, <clears throat> this has to do with the, what the Chaldean oracles say about... It. Now, remember, Hecate is associated with dogs, okay? So here she, here it says in page 87, the Chaldean system warned against reliance on the Chthonic daemons called, by the oracles, dogs. Okay, so that's interesting. That traditional magic made use of the theurgist instead, made use of by the theurgist, I'm sorry, instead was to be aided by the celestial, platonic, um, demons, that demons, daemons, that had been dispersed throughout the cosmos by the paternal intellect. Again, the theurgist was advised to trust in what God gave, not in his own skills alone. Um and um okay so she talks about theurgy in terms of being not working upon the gods but being worked on upon by the gods okay so there's this idea now at this point now this is kind of sets the tone for the separation of hecate who remember they identify with the world's soul um with with this kind of saving figure who's a bridge okay remember she's associated with crossroads she's a bridge um between you know for the soul into the higher realms um which by the way was associated with the moon um it's you know this this kind of separate this kind of sets up the separation of her from the chthonic because the chthonic obviously um was not part of the higher realms the air the intellect the the celestial okay um okay now uh Sarah Isles Johnson also talks about the idea of an epiphany now epiphany is kind of I I define epiphany a little bit differently than she does I tend to think of an epiphany as sort of like a a kind of aha moment as it were it's like where one you know is sitting in and it's usually not in a very rational way like you could just be listening to a piece of music for example or or just observing something when all of a sudden sort of like a, a truth comes to you She defines epiphany a little bit differently. She says epiphanies represent the overstepping of a boundary, something foreign intrudes into the mortal, which I guess you could say it's like a divine inspiration, into the mortal earthly sphere which cannot contain a god easily. The very presence of a god immediately causes the ground to shake, the tides to exceed their normal limits, the atmosphere to bristle with lightning and thunder. The idea behind this point was important to Greek religious thought in general and particular to the Chaldean system to later Platonism and to magic. The universe was divided in distinct physical and hierarchical zones each with its appropriate inhabitants the gods were divined and belonged on olympus or later times above the moon men were mortal and belonged on earth or belonged below the moon crossing these zones boundaries was in some cases desirable for example the theurgist strove to send his soul out of the sensible realm but in all such cases a hierarchy was overturned resulting in a temporary disturbance of the universe's normal workings okay um, that, that again is a very important point to, um, to consider, you know, this idea of transcending. So now we're talking about this idea, uh, the theurgists are certainly, um, you know, talking about, uh, you know, being able to transcend what's, what's normal for ordinary mortals. The Gnostics kind of had this idea as well. Um, okay. My notes next point me to page 134 here. Um, about the Chaldean daemon dogs, okay? I want to talk about this a little bit because now we're going to get into um, the the separation of Hecate, Hecate into two. Um, several oracle fragments mention daemons called dogs, uh, quoted in order, and this is from the Chaldean oracles, uh, translated, uh, for indeed from the womb of the earth rush forth earthly dogs that never reveal a true sign to mortal man. Okay, um... And then just to skip over, for it is essential that you do not regard these, and she interpolates dogs, before you initiate your body. For being earthly, difficult dogs, they are shameless, and charming souls, they constantly drag them away from the rites. Okay, so, okay, so this idea of the dog, first of all, be connected with the earthly and the chthonic. Um and also um, with a being that, it, that I know I mistakenly in the last one was referring to Sistis. It's just I'm getting my letters mixed up in my mind. I'm actually referring to Physis. physis. Now, Physis is a nature goddess, okay, is, is, the, is sort of the, the goddess of the material world, as it were, in this particular Neoplatonic system. And Physis in this system, now, Hecate, it said that, um, uh, Let me just find my particular um, thing here. Um, Let's see. Okay. Yeah, the Physis is now considered to be the negative aspect of Hecate. So let me explain that. Uh, First, she says, From early times, Hecate was associated with Phantasm's apparitions, marginal creatures who wandered with her usually at night. Some merely frightened men. Others were imagined to bring bad dreams, illness, or madness. Okay. Although it is difficult to discern the exact identity of these creatures, it can be said that they are of generally a daemonic nature. Now, daemon, not, not demon, daemon, okay, just want to distinguish here, daemon is an intermediary spirit. For like daemons, they are liminal, neither man nor God, and like daemons, they interact with man. At least by the time of the Greek magical papyri, and probably earlier, Hecate's swarm of daemonic creatures clearly is identified with the restless dead disembodied souls who are trapped between the upper world and Hades who carry out the magician's curses or desires okay because they're because they're restless the magician feels that they can make a pact they can offer something to uh, to help the restless spirit that the restless spirit helps them okay or that they could be controlled because they're they're not in a place of control um okay after philosophy became interested in daemons as mediating creatures Hecate was sometimes was portrayed as their mistress and as the mistress of disembodied souls, in great part by virtue of her own mediating nature. Okay? Um, these daemons could be bad or good, intent either on carrying out God's wishes or deceiving men. Later, some systems began to call the good daemons angels or inges uh, and retain the name daemon only for the bad. Okay? So now we're starting to see where we get the idea of a daemon being a demon instead. At the time the Chaldean oracles were composed then, Hecate generally was associated with daemons who were mediators, but who could be good or bad. These were imagined to dwell between heaven and earth in the sublunar region, but she also continued to be associated with bad Chthonic daemons, or apparitions, who emerged from the infernal regions to terrify and harm men. In fact, in other contexts, such as the magical papyri and Greco-Roman poetry, this side of her personality had grown ever more prominent. In adopting Hecate as its cosmic soul, a celestial entity removed from the turmoil and pollution of Earth, Chaldean system had to rid her of her undesirable threatening traits, including her role as mistress of the bad daemons. As it happened, Middle Platonic philosophy conveniently provided a means to do this. Some Platonists posited a double soul, the upper half of which remained secluded from the sensible world and the lower half which came, just, which came into contact with men and the hylex sphere. Justification for this could be found in certain remarks in Plato. Through the efforts of this irrational soul, the sublunar physical world operated. At least as early as Plotinus, possibly earlier, this lower soul was identified with Aristotle's physis. Okay, so now we're to physis. Chaldean system had a physis too. Our character agrees with that of the platonic irrational soul. So to read from the fragment uh, 70, Tireless physis rules the cosmoi and the works so that the sky might run, dragging out its eternal course, and the rapid sun might go, as usual, around its center. Like the Platonic Irrational Soul, the Chaldean physis ruled the cosmoi, the planets, and the works, the operations of the physical universe. However, they also say, do not invoke the self-manifesting image of physis, and if she does happen to manifest, do not look at physis, for her name is like fate. Okay, so why? Well, what's fate? Well, fate is the normal thing that we get involved in life. We engage in life. We are happy. We are sad. We engage engage in physical pleasures. The idea was that you were supposed to transcend all of these, and this is not a new concept for people who are spiritual seekers. I'm going to transcend all the temptations and sufferings of the body, which actually, well, I don't know. I personally think it's just kind of ridiculous. We we spend most of our times trying to not live our lives. But that's, that's just an aside. Um, so she says, if Platonic irrational soul is the lower half of the cosmic soul, then is Chaldean physis really Hecate's soul? Okay. Um, and so the answer here we seem to see in another oracle, boundless physis is suspended from the back of the goddess, meaning Hecate. Uh, the fragment does not equate her with physis. However, it makes them separate entities, one of who hangs from that is dependent on the other. Okay. Okay. Um, So she points out, though, Physis was not so much evil as she was simply Heilic, involved with the functioning of the material world. Now here's where we start to see this notion of the material world becoming evil, which kind of probably reaches its peak in the um, Cathar heresy that the church put down probably, I guess, around the the 1200s uh, AD, um, in which the idea that all matter was evil. And this is where we actually get a lot of our ideas of devil and Satan um, as sort of this manifestation of material temptation and uh, being dragged down to some horrible fate because we have this, um, you know, this idea that anything having to do with the physical world is sinful. Okay. Um, She says, but any system such as the Chaldean that preached the denial of the material as a means to salvation could not help find in her a dangerously disruptive goddess. Okay. So um, I want to compare that to, in my, my notes, I say I sort of compare this to Proverbs 5, where they talk about these kinds of things like the seduction of what they call either a um, loose or a foreign woman, depending on the translation, who will drag one down to Sheol, which of course is the, is the pit, which is, which is the traditional underworld, not the celestial one okay and uh so you can see too where you 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 know even though we see philo's assertion about the difference between greek religion jewish religion and um the, the philosophers but you can see also these points where they end up merging into a philosophy that's sort of accepted as a later narrative okay um so okay i have uh so, the, the, see this, this celestial Hecate who's being separated from the earth. Um, says the oracle, this is Sarah Isles Johnson again, just to be clear, page 141. The oracle portrays a Hecate who has been syncretized with several other deities Phoebe or Selene, the moon. Um, who's the birth goddess, and perhaps Artemis. But it also separates a celestial Hecate from the darker side of her traditional nature. Hecate says that she herself wanders through the heavens, appearing in fiery, ethereal forms, or flies through the a silvery chariot, i.e. the moon. It is the Earth, on the other hand, who restrains and guides the dogs normally associated with her. Okay? So I talk a lot about there being a split, and I'm not the only one. I mean, uh, a lot of... Um, magicians or or practitioners who are kind of looking back to traditional practices jake stratton comes to mind uh talks about this idea of moving the chthonic to the celestial and the kind of disruption that that causes okay um i have some some final notes here i kind of want to finish up because um because boy does time go by fast and i think this you know and and, and just to avoid rambling on too many digressions i kind of want to make uh, some of these last few points okay so, um, again, just finishing up with Sarah Isles Johnston, um, I'm looking at, uh, page 145 now, um, <clears throat> she says, okay, bottom of 144, she was a birth goddess, and she was a death goddess, accompanying souls on their two greatest journeys. Those souls who did not succeed in making the transition in or out of the body, however, were eternally under her control, forced to wander with her. So this is where we have the idea of the a sort of, uh, wandering in the underworld with either Hecate or the Furies, right? Uh, many magical acts depended on these wandering souls or daemons. For example, from the 5th century onwards, cursed tablets were placed in graves and other places where souls would be expected to linger. In particular, they were placed in the graves of children, whose souls as um, Aore, would be expected to linger between life and death longer than normal. The soul was expected to carry the curse to the Chthonic daemons or deities who would enforce it. Okay, so the soul becomes the intermediary there. Uh, disembodied or daemons were the magician's tools. Their ability to travel between the worlds enabled them to make good his requests, their unsettled status to put them at his mercy. Okay. And, um, she notes on 147, before the emergence of Theurgy, magicians sought the help of such chthonic daemons and disembodied souls. Magic was largely a chthonic art. Okay. Dealing with the earth, with calling up spirits of the earth, and also with making use of a, you know, sort of the pharmacon, the, the, the natural, um, knowledge of herbs and plants and and things of the earth theurgy however placed the power of the magician sought in the celestial realm okay so we see this um not you know magic you know we we, uh, magic is sort of the basis of modern religion in this sense and and science at least this, this sort of platonic bent to it um because it has to do with this um plumbing into the into the depths to rising above what the ordinary mortal uh, and, and maybe perhaps emphasizing the divine nature of the mortal, or the part that can be um, saved, which, um, save, be that, that's a very Orphic idea, the idea that um, mortals come from the ashes of the Titans, who had, consume, who had killed and consumed Dionysus, and Dionysus in this uh, Orphic cosmogony is a savior figure. He's, he's supposed to be the successor to Zeus. Uh, the Titans are jealous. They kill him, cook him, and eat him. He's saved by Athena, and he's resurrected. Hmm. wonder when that happens. I think I've said this before. Um, and then um, Zeus reduces the Titans to ashes with a thunderbolt in anger, and out of those rise mortals who have the, quote-unquote, wicked nature of the Titans, but also that have the, um, the, the divine spark of Dionysus in them. Okay, so this is the idea of cultivating the divinity in people. It's a nice idea, but it has it has its drawbacks, and one of the things that I argue in my book that actually should be out today, I think I saw Amazon pre-orders are, are being filled today for Death and the Maiden, the curious relationship between the fear of death and the fear of the feminine, um, that is something that I focus on, is this, um, you know, this this kind of way in which um what what appears to be a very good thing you know the idea of introducing reason and order and and logic and and salvation into all of this the way that you know we've not considered the ways the consequences you know what the negative consequences of that might be and as i've always said i feel it's it's the feminine side of things um it's the earth it's the chthonic you know we wonder today why we have such a, a crummy attitude towards the earth um and, uh, you know, there's this kind of attitude like either we have dominion over it or God's going to save it or or, or whatever. There, there's this there's kind of a very dismissive attitude that's embedded in kind of Western consciousness. So to me, it is not surprising when people kind of go, oh, yeah, well, you know, you know, it's it's just, uh, you know, we're, we're at a time of crisis when, when sustainability of life on the planet may be something going away and we tend to take a very cavalier attitude towards it because we don't you know we 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 have a kind of um core belief somewhere in our in our um unconscious cultural narrative you might say that that comes out of this that that somehow debases the earth as something to be transcended okay so that's something to think about it's not that you know striving towards intellect and and um I don't know, reaching your potential is a bad thing. It's not. But at the same time, consider what the consequences are of that way of thinking. Um, There really needs to be a balance. Okay, so that is all I'm going to say on Hecate. Uh, For now, it's possible that in the future there could be yet another episode on Hecate, because there's probably plenty more to say about her, certainly about her later associations with witchcraft and, and so forth. Uh, but for now, we're going to stop there and, and take a little bit of a turn, as I would mentioned earlier in the episode. Uh, once again, just again, want to plug net, which is has all my podcasts plus all of my other projects and work. Um, I also, like I said, I also offer um, readings. I'm also starting a holistic practice. Uh, you know, doing Reiki and my own modalities. I have my own version of Reiki that I do. I mean, it's 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 Reiki, right? You know, like anybody else's Reiki, but I, I have my own um, modalities. Um, doing what I call crisis Reiki um, for dealing, particularly with um, shadowing crisis, which most um, most systems do not deal with. This they deal with. Um, uh, you know, they they're just kind of dealing with positive thinking and changing your thoughts and and that and purifying and that sort of thing and my, my view on that is quite different and I don't feel it actually helps you in a crisis. So my focus is more on, on crisis and I'm going to have more on that. Um, also you can visit metapsychosis.com slash series slash chthonia. All the episodes are there as well. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google play if you don't already. And I think Spotify has it as well. And you can, um, uh and then you know and also if you are interested in contributing to my projects um which I would um very much like I'd like to be able to devote more of my time to this um and to to my other related um not only writing projects but um to classes and doing other things there'll be there'll be a new class by the way starting this fall I'll have more information about that on kathonia.net and on metapsychosis um I am going to be um you know, you know, if you want to donate to, you know, to my project and sustaining a lot of this work, uh, my, you know, my patreon.com slash um, and all the links, of course, if you're watching the YouTube version, I, I present all the links at the end. So, um, and those who are my patrons, again, big thank you, um, to, for your continued support. And, uh, with that, we will, um, talk in the next episode.